Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Now, let me start off by saying that was a great response, and I look forward to more responses. When I speak to you, I often want to have a speak back. I like this to be a conversation, although it's mostly one way. So if I pause and look at you like you should answer, you just go ahead, okay? <laughs> Let's try that again. So good morning. All right, great. That's a good start. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be a part of a place with such a great choir and a great praise team and band and, and our leaders and our staff seem to be just doing a great job as far as I've got to know them so far. I've been very excited to be able to work with them. I look forward to jumping in tomorrow on our first day together in the office. And I'm so excited to worship with you. And it has been uh, anything short of, uh, if I said it was anything short of an adventure, I would be lying to get here. Uh, It's been crazy. We've done two moves back and forth now with vehicles. The last one included four vehicles. One looked like the Clampett Mobile, uh, and one of them had our dogs in it, and one had our kids in it. And I drove the big green truck that's sitting out back over here uh, that we're waiting to move into our house when it closes, hopefully in a week or two. Uh, it's been a crazy adventure. It took us two days, what most people could do in a day, because we have five kids, too, six and under, right? And that's just crazy to travel with. And so we had a great time getting here, but I'm glad that part's over. And so while we're homeless, we decided to go and be homeless at the beach for a couple of days last week. I think that's a good place to go and be homeless, right? We're going to be homeless somewhere. And so we did that, but we are back here now, and we are so excited to be at our first day of worship with you guys. And I cannot wait to see what God's going to do as we journey together from this point on. Now, I know, I know because I've, I've known some former pastors here. I've been under some of the teachings of the former pastors here. I know that this church has had a long legacy of serving the kingdom and making much of Jesus, and I'm just excited to be a part of that process now with you. And so I hope today as we look into this text together that uh, you will uh, enable me to kind of start off at a place that I know is probably pretty remedial for most of you, but a place that I think I want to make sure we're on the same page about as we get a good foundation for where we're headed from here forward. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, and we're going to be starting a a three-week series, a real short series uh, about laying the foundation for what's going to be coming down the pike at you. So here's why I'm calling it laying the foundation. You're going to hear this type of language, the stuff you're going to hear the next three weeks, you're going to hear this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for me. And you're going to hear it because it's going to be all through scripture. These are foundational themes that run through everything. Uh, They are at the core of who we are as the church. And I just want to make sure that you guys understand where I'm coming from. And so for the next three weeks, as we're laying this foundation, we're going to talk about becoming a Christ-centered, confessional community. Now, you guys are already doing that, I'm sure. But all of us have some room for growth in how Christ-centered we are and how confessional we are about our sinfulness to one another and to the Lord and even to the public about how we're not perfect, but Jesus is. We're going to confess that to one another and to others, and also about being a community. I know you guys know that the greatest apologetic given to us in Scripture is when Jesus tells the the disciples and talking about the future church, he says, they will know that you are mine because of the way you love one another. And that's stuff that we're going to pour into as we get down to that part of it. But today we're going to talk about just that first part, being a Christ-centered church. Now, you guys have had that for the history, I know. 
I sat under Dr. Trader. He helped to disciple me through some of my seminary years. He used to always embarrass me when I would come visit and sit with my dad in church. He'd make me stand up and say hey to everybody. I won't make that, any of you do that, okay? Because <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing sometimes. But what I will do is say that I've heard it from him. I know I heard it from Craig on a couple of times I've been here when Craig was here. I know it was here before that. And it's not anything new, but it's something we need to be reminded of. And sometimes it can be new enough that the angle in which we hear it can actually change us. So my asking of you today is to listen with some ears that are kind of new to this idea. Pretend like you've never heard it before. And I think today you might be impacted a little bit differently with how we're going to understand some truths about how we need to become more Christ-centered. Because here's the deal. I know a lot of people in seminary that I went to school with, the guys that are supposed to be pastors and leaders in churches, that are no longer in ministry. And some of them even left the faith because they were not Christ-centered, because they had not really understood what it meant to be a Christian. They thought they were believers. And I think that's no different in the rest of the church world, not just the pastors. There's a lot of people going to church on a regular occasion that think they're Christians that are not really Christians. And they just have no idea that they're not a believer. They have no idea that they're not a follower of Jesus. They think they are because they do all the same things that everybody else does. They've made all the same verbal commitments or public commitments. They've been baptized. They go to church. They show up on a regular basis. They read their Bible sometimes or all the time. And really, they think that they are in. But one of the scariest places in the Bible that I'm going to take us to real quick is kind of a, a foundational part of this talk today is a place that scares me to death sometimes. Not just for me, but for the, for the faith family, for the church folks that believe that they're believers, well, maybe they're not. And so I'm not going to assume that any of you are believers, because that's my job, is to make sure that I don't assume anything, right? Never works out for us to assume. I'm just going to say here that I don't know who you are as far as your relationship with God, no matter how much you've served in the church, no matter how little you've served in the church, no matter how long you've been here, how little you've been here. What I know is that today we're going to look at a fundamental core truth that we need to get better at no matter where we are. And so I want to push us into that realm. Now, here's the passage I want to throw at you that scares you. Keep your finger in John 5, and I'm going to read from Matthew 7 real quick. Matthew 7. This, when I read this in seminary, I was new. I was fresh off the bus. They shouldn't have let me in. I got in too quick. I became a believer in September, and I got in seminary in January. They should have made me wait a little while, but God just greased the wheels, wanted me in there, right? And so I got in, and when I was in there, I learned real fast that I didn't know very much about the Bible like I thought I did. And this passage jumped off the page at me the first time I ever read this in a teaching environment and was taught more about what this means. Let's look at uh, John, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Let me just read it for you. This is Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's telling everybody, he's like, okay, you've got to be this and do that, and your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, and don't do this and don't do that, and all these things he does. And at the end, he says these words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, it's the day of judgment. Jesus is saying on the day of judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Now, that is terrifying to hear. Why is it terrifying? Look, listen, look. He starts off by, the people are saying, Lord, Lord. They're saying, Master, Master. They're, they're saying, hey, they love Jesus. 
They are his servants. They're calling him Lord, Master, doubly. Master, Master, Lord, Lord. They're saying that like they are his. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Did we, did, didn't we do this thing for you? Look at the things they do. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Now, I don't know how many of us have ever cast out demons. Probably not very many, right? And yet these are ones, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. The ones who did mighty works in his name, that should be a little terrifying to us. I, I don't know about you, but me preaching doesn't feel like a mighty work sometimes, right? Teaching a Sunday school class, and I've done that, didn't feel like a mighty work sometimes. Sometimes the Lord did mighty things, right? But it wasn't casting out demons. But he's saying people that say they did that for him, and he's saying, no, 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 depart from me, I never knew you. Here's part of the central core of what we're going to talk about as we get into this today is that you can say that you know God all day long, but what really matters is whether or not he knows you. Let me say that again. You can say all day long that you know God and that you are his and he's your Lord and all this. You can say all that all day long, but really what matters is he say that you're his. That's what really matters. And here's the illustration to prove the point. Uh, I lived in Maryland for the last nine years, and I've been to D.C. just a few times, and uh, I got out of there quick, man. It's crazy there. Traffic's horrible. It's insane there. But when I was there, if I'd have walked up to the front door at the White House and tried to get on the lawn to go see the president, if I yelled at the fence, hey, let me in. I know the president. Do you think they would let me in? They'd probably throw me to the ground and put handcuffs on me and get me out of there, right, for touching the fence or something. They they won't let me in. But if the president came out and said, hey, I know that guy. That's Thomas Wimborne. Let him in. Do you think they'd let me in then? Probably. Probably would put me through my checks and all that stuff, but he'd probably let me in. It's the same thing with us in this situation that we see with Jesus talking about. It's not about what you say from the outside of the fence about who you know. It's about whether the one who has the power and the authority and the ruling who says, yes, I know him, let him in. So the question I want you to think on today is, am I really who I think I am? Am I really in like I think I'm in? Because you probably wouldn't be here if you didn't think that you were in the club, right? You probably wouldn't be here if you didn't think that you were in this body, being a part of the body, because you are a part of the faith family here. Now, some of you may not be. I'm not talking to you right now, but you're welcome to listen in with us, right? I want you to go on this adventure with us. But I want to take a few minutes to talk about what a right relationship with God looks like and what it's predicated on, and then what it's not as well. In fact, I'm going to give you three things that this right relationship is not predicated on, it's not founded on. I'm going to give you one major thing, and we're going to break that one major thing down into several things. Okay, are you ready for that? Yes. We'll try a good job. We'll try again. You ready for that? Yes. All right, here we go. Here's what I want to do. I want to read for you the passage I'm going to be reading. I'm going to read verses 39 through 42 of John 5. Now, I'm not reading you the entire context. Let me just tell you a little secret. It is your responsibility to make sure that I'm telling the truth. Okay. I'm going to get up here and preach Jesus and preach Scripture every time, no doubt. I'm going to do that. That's my job. That's my love, my passion. But it's your responsibility to then go home and make sure what I said is real. And then you've got to do one of two things with it. One, if, you, if it's not real, if it's not straight from Scripture, you can toss it on the way home out the window. I mean, don't litter the page, really, but you know what I'm saying. You can throw it out, okay? I mean, y'all are a hard crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, though, if it's real and it's true then you've got to do something with that because then you see it's from the Lord and it's from the Word and you've got to either obey that or tell God you're not going to obey that. So you're the one responsible for that. 
All I can do is give you the truth. You've got to deal with it. So you're going to go back and read the context this week, right? And you're going to look at this and make sure it's true. What I'm telling you here is that Jesus is trying to explain to them when they're questioning, like, why should we listen to you? The Pharisees are saying, why, why, do we, why are you the guy we have to listen to? How do we know you are who you say you are? So he gives them reason after reason after reason. He goes through the fact that the Father has borne witness to him. He goes to the fact that, that John the Baptist gave witness to him. And he comes down to the end. He says, when scriptures gave witness to me, the scriptures point to me. You should know these things. You're the Pharisees. You know all this stuff, right? And he picks it up in verse 39 of John chapter 5, and he says this. To the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, he's saying this to the religious leaders. Don't don't jump in all of a sudden and think, well, those silly Pharisees, they were idiots. Didn't they see that was Jesus? I mean, he was doing crazy signs in front of them. But don't slip into it for just a moment thinking that we're better than them just because they didn't get it right off the cuff. I mean, how many times did you not get it right off the cuff, right? I, mean, I had people praying for me for years before I came to faith. And I knew the truth. I knew it in my head. I assented to it intellectually, but I didn't know him. Right? And he's saying here, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But he's saying, basically, you missed the point. They're all about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Now, my fear is that many of us are actually in that realm. Not necessarily everybody in this room or a lot of people in this room, but many of us as people that call ourselves believers. And so you think about you. Don't think about your cousin, Sally, or don't think about your nephew or your uncle or your sister. Or mom. Think about you. Think about where do I land in this? Now, let's just look at it. Think about the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the people that are the supposedly smartest people of the group. They went through all the whole Christian school thing, and they memorized all the Old Testament. They made it to the top of the class. They're the ones that graduated with honors. They're the guys that were better at receiving and, and keeping in information. They knew more about the Bible than anybody else. They were the ones who had to interpret all the scriptures. If there's an argument, you go to the Pharisees. In fact, the Pharisees were so much into that that they would show how great they were at that by standing one-to-one and kind of towing off against each other and who was the best and say who could interpret the law the best, right? They, they knew it all. They, just, they knew it all to the minutia. They knew every little letter memorized, and that was their thing. They were the top of the food chain in the church world. They were the pastors of the pastors. They were the guys. They were the utmost guys. But I don't think many of them, we think they're like these horrible people. I think most of them really wanted to love God. They really wanted to do what God wanted. They just had a misunderstanding of what that was. Now, some of them were in it for ill gain, just like some pastors now are in it for their G36 jets, you know, because they like that. Some guys are in it for that. We don't have one of those here, right? Do we? No? Some of them are in it for the money or for the power or for the prestige, but most guys I know in the ministry, they're not in it for that. I'm sure most of these guys weren't in it for that either. They're there because they want to serve the Lord. They're giving their life to the God who created them. But they missed the mark. They didn't even realize it. Look at this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me tell you this. This is number one in your notes. A right relationship with God is not predicated on how much you know about God. A right relationship with God is not predicated on knowing much about God. There's not a test about how much memorization you've done to see if you get in. 
So you can know a lot about God, and that's really good. You should. This should be what we eat and drink and sleep on and breathe in and breathe out as we speak. I mean, Jesus says you should feast on him and drink down his blood and eat his flesh. Remember, like John 8, 6, 7, 8? It's crazy language he uses, right? People leave by the dozens because he says this. But he's talking about we should feast on him regularly. So I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm just saying that your right relationship with God is not founded or based on your knowledge about God. So don't think just because you know a lot of the Bible, don't just think because you know a lot of the Sunday school lessons that you actually are good with God because of that. That's not how it works. Many of you say, we know that. But we're Baptists, right? We're people of the book because we love the book because the book shows us Jesus, right? Amen? Amen. Yeah, we stand on this book. Don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. I, I love what it does for us. I, I, I trust the Scriptures wholly, fully, without error. I trust the inerrancy of the Scriptures as God had wrote them through men by the power of His Holy Spirit using crooked sticks to draw straight lines, per se, Right? I love that. I stand on this. This is our only solid structure and founding of truth. This is it. This is what we will stand on or we will fall as the church. We will no longer be the church. We don't stand on this. What I'm saying is, is that we miss the point if this becomes the center of attention. It's just like if I went off to New York City and I wanted to see some of the beautiful skyline from up in one of the tall buildings... If you've never been to a city where you can do that, you look out through these great big windows and look over and see these beautiful towns, this beautiful scenery, right? When you do that, if you're sitting there looking at it and somebody walks up and looks at that thing with you and says, wow, that, look at that spectacular. You're like, yeah, I know, it's beautiful, isn't it? And they go, yeah, that glass has got to be a half inch thick. Look at the frame on that thing. It's just, you don't even notice it. It's beautiful. What's that made out of? That's crazy. I'm sure it's unbreakable. I'm going to take a bit of that and test it, and I'm going to get it figured out. I'm going to send you the results so you know how it works together. I just can't get over this piece of glass and this window here. I mean, nobody would do that, right? That'd be crazy. But that's what we do so often. We think that this is the end-all, be-all. It is the end-all, be-all for truth, but the purpose of the Bible is not to terminate on the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to be the window through which we see Jesus. It points us to Jesus. And so this is the way in which we understand who God is, so we can love him rightly. It shows us where we fail as the mirror reflecting the standard that God has so that we can repent and live more like Jesus. But this is not the thing we worship. We worship the person, Jesus. That's why he says this again. Look at this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's not in your knowledge of the Bible. It's in your person of knowledge of Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. The whole Bible is about relationships. You took relationships out of the Bible, there is no religion. God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, the person, Jesus, to die for us so that he could draw us into his family, to adopt us. That's, that's familial language. That's not textual language. That's not literature language. This is the way we know God. Just knowing this is not enough. You need to know personally, know Jesus, Right? Can't get hung up on that. You can come to the Bible religiously and still not come to Jesus. Haven't you seen that before? Haven't you seen people come to faith that have been reading the Bible for years and never, and all of a sudden, boom, the Holy Spirit hits them and they're like, wow, I get it now, right? That's because it's the person. 
A right relationship with God is not predicated on knowing much about God, about knowing Him in the person of Jesus. Secondly, a right relationship with God is not predicated on living right before God. Morality. You don't get to be in with God simply because you live well. Now hear me, church. I know that we go like, of course not. We're Baptists. We know. We know the gospel. Jesus. That's how we get there. But here's the problem that we fall into. The problem we fall into is that we know that Jesus is good to get us in the door, but then we start leaning on our morality after that. So let me, let me state it a different way. Man, you don't know Jesus. You hear the gospel preached. You hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody to the Father but through him. And you're like, yes, that's it. It rings true. I understand now. You come forward. You pray a prayer. You get baptized. You're in. And now it's like, okay, now you got to start living better. Now you got to start being a good person. Now you got to start like, Go to Sunday school, serve on a team somewhere in the church, be on this committee, that committee, maybe preaching is your thing, maybe playing in the band, maybe, maybe singing is your thing, whatever it is, get in your place and do your thing, and now you've got to quit talking like that, you've got to quit acting like this, you may have to quit dressing like that according to church rules, whatever it is. All this stuff now, it's like all of a sudden, Jesus got me in the door, but now it's up to my morality to stay good. Before we know it, Jesus is good for evangelism to get people in, but then it's about living up to the standard. Now, don't get me wrong. Should you look different a year after meeting Jesus than you did when you first met him? Of course you should, because he's working in you, and the Holy Spirit's moving in you and changing you, and you're pressing into him in that way. But your right relationship with God is not predicated on your morality. It's predicated on Jesus' morality, because you'll never be good enough to be perfect to be okay with God. It just won't be. That's a sad, depressing thing, unless you know Jesus. You'll never be good enough. Let me hear church... We're, we are good people. I know a lot of you and you are good people. But when you compare yourself to the true mark, the true standard, who is Jesus, none of us are good people. We have lots of failures and lots of faults. And we need the Savior Jesus just as much today as the first day we ever met him. We have to have him just as much today as the first day we ever met him. Otherwise, we're living in a morality. If you're not depending on Jesus today, then you're living under your own power, under your own authority, under your own salvation, which is not true salvation at all. It's just simple morality. That's not a right relationship. The Pharisees were great at it, and yet we think they're crazy. They were living in their own morality. A right relationship with God is not predicated on living right before God. It's not predicated on knowing much about God. A right relationship with God is also not predicated on obeying the rules of God. It's a little bit different, it's nuanced. Hear me right, okay? When I say right relationship, I mean your salvific standing, your being saved is not predicated on how many rules you obey and how many you don't break. Put it this way. My wife knows I've shared this story before, so it's not something new just because she's not here, okay? So you feel free to talk to her about it. She told me that when she was growing up, she was in a very fundamentalist church, Baptist church. And I say that, I love fundamentals. I'm a fundamentalist guy. The fundamentals are the truths, okay? But they took the fun out of fundamentalism, all right? And she said that they would oftentimes play a game, as what kids do when she was a young teenager, and they would sit there in the back of the church, and when the offering plate was coming around to get the envelopes, if you've been in church long enough, you remember the envelopes where you checked marked everything you did that week that you were supposed to do, read the Bible, pray, talk to somebody about Jesus, like all these things. And they would see how many of those things they could do before the offering plate got to them and check mark all the boxes and drop it in. You know, they'd read the Bible real fast, read a verse, and they would they'd pray, and then they'd talk to somebody about Jesus, and then they would you know, try to do that real fast. 
you, you could do all those things, or you could even do it with all your heart. You could do all these religious duties with all your heart, but if that's what you're putting your salvation in, you're saying, that's why I know I'm okay, then it's in the wrong place, and it's not real. That's not real faith. Real faith is found in trusting in the person of Jesus and in his perfect obedience to the rules. Now, should you be obeying the rules? Sure you should. We'll see that in a minute. You should be obeying the rules. But your obedience does not bring you salvation. Jesus' obedience brings you salvation. The Pharisees were pictures of all this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And he says, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So what he's saying is that you have to have the love of God that's motivating you, that's motivating you to come to him. In fact, that's what I would say. All these things that are not the right way, a right relationship with God is predicated on continually coming to Jesus because you love him. Not because you get into heaven. Not because you stay out of hell. Those are good things. But that's not the right motivations. And if we don't know anything else, we know that motives are really important in scriptures. In fact, Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. We all think we have right motives or we wouldn't do the things we do. We all can justify our actions, right? Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things. You hear that? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Please don't tell anybody to ever follow their heart. That is bad advice. Follow Jesus. You can't trust your motives. You need to seek the Lord, pray, ask Him, what are my motives? So here's, I want to break this down. What does it mean to continually come to Jesus because you love Him? Let me give you some things. Coming to Christ means repenting daily. Repenting daily. Yes, I said daily. And actually, it's continually. In Mark 1, Jesus enters the stage, right? And He's hanging out with some disciples around Him, and He says these words, in 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, here's the gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now's the time. Repent and believe. And those words mean repent now and keep on repenting. Believe now and keep on believing. You never finish. You never get done. It's not a, hey, I prayed this prayer and I'm done. I dumped me under some water and I'm good. I'm fresh. Let's start new. That's a part of the process, but it's keep on repenting, keep on believing. How do we know that's the case? It's all over Scripture. It's everywhere. I challenge you, if you don't think that's true, you start reading through the Gospels and see how many places he tells people to repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. My job and your job, the way we come to Jesus is first by recognizing that we've set our eyes off of him. Let's say you are a believer. You know what? If you've not been living for his glory this week, then you need to repent. If you've not been doing the things you do so that he gets the glory, we need to repent. For all have have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? All of us need to repent. If you looked in the mirror today and said, I don't think there's anything I need to repent of, you need to stare more into the mirror of the face and glory of God and the law and say, I have failed that level. God, please help me. Turn from that and turn to the Lord. That's repentance. Martin Luther 
right? I love Martin. If you've never read any old church, old day guys from church history, you need to read Martin Luther. He's like, so, so like Zwingli was one of the guys. He, he was like, he, would, he was like a, a, an expert guy with a sword. He's really good at arguing with people. Luther had a club, and he just beat people over the head. I mean, in fact, he even said, we should take the gospel and, and beat people over the head with it continually until they believe it. That's what he said. Okay, I love the way he puts his words to things. Here's what he said, though, in his first of his theses that he nailed to the door at Wittenberg in the church there that started the revolution, the, the Reformation. This is the first of his 95 theses. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance, ongoing forever and ever and ever. So first, coming to Christ means repenting daily. Secondly, coming to Christ means dying to self daily. That's not much fun yet, does it? But it's the process. I'm giving you a process. First is repentance. Turn away, turn unto the Lord, and then die to self. Matthew 10, 38 says it. Matthew 16, 24 says it. I'm going to start there. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let him crucify himself and come after me. That's what he's saying. Galatians 2.20, Paul says it in one of my favorite ways to say it. One of the earliest verses I've memorized. I love this passage, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're dead, folks. There is no more fighting anymore. There's no more, hey, what do I think we should do? What do I think? When we get in church business meetings, it shouldn't be about, well, I think this and I think that. It's what does the Scripture say and what is God leading us to do according to His Holy Spirit? Amen? Amen. We're dead. It's not about us anymore. It's not about my desires or your desires for the church. It's about God's desires. The center of the universe is not us, right? It's not, we know it's not the earth, right? It's Jesus because He created it all. He's at the center of all things. He's at the center of it all. He's at the middle of it all, and he should remain there. That's why we go to three. So after you repent and after you die to self, then you should center your life around Christ regularly, daily. Center your life around it. Everything you do, revolve it around Jesus. Make sure it all points back to him. Coming to Christ means centering your life around him daily. This is the crazy part to me. I don't know how I made it through seminary and didn't get this. I don't know how somebody didn't teach me this in seminary. Are you following Scripture to the center they point to who is Jesus? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. I grew up hearing stories, especially Old Testament stories, and hearing them told, and it really just pushed me to a lot of morality. We're going to talk about a lot of these in an upcoming series after the first three weeks. I'm really excited about it called epic. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. I love going to Old Testament stories. We're going to nail some of those big Old Testament stories. But I think we, I, I don't I will speak for you. I won't speak for any of you. I learned them in a way that was wrong because I learned them where the story was told up until the end where the, where the whole big point was crescendoing into that main person in the story. Listen to this in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Nothing in the scriptures, the big crescendo should never terminate on the people in the scriptures unless that person is Jesus. He's the only one it should terminate on. It's all about him. Let me just let the word of God tell us that, though, instead of taking it from me. Let me read a few of them off to you. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Remember that story in the Old Testament? They lift up the serpent and people look at it and they would not be sick anymore. That's because it's about Jesus. It all was pointing to him. It says it right there. John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is saying that Abraham was rejoicing, waiting for the day for Jesus to come. He's, everything was about him. He was the fulfillment of all of Abraham's prophecies there. Luke 24 to 27, from the words where Jesus does it himself. He's walking along the road to, on the road to Emmaus after he's been resurrected. He's hanging out with a couple of disciples that did not recognize him. And as he's walking along, he begins to explain to them. He says, these in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says it's all about him. He shows all the, us all about him. All the ceremonies, all the rites, all the prophecies, they all terminate on Jesus. It blew my mind the first time I ever understood that. How did I not hear that when I was a kid? How did I not hear that at VBS? How did I not hear that in seminary? How did I not hear those things? That's a travesty. Those stories became about good morals and, and having enough faith instead of having the Savior, right? How many of you could ever muster up enough faith to overcome some of the demons and travesties in your life? We can't. We fail. And if you don't fail, you feel like you've done it all and we're prideful. And if we do fail, we feel like we just didn't have enough faith. And man, I'm just so sorry. When really it's not that at all. God lets us go through some junk sometimes. Because it refines us. We don't have the big picture, but we know this. He never, never, ever doesn't fulfill his promise. He always fulfills his promises. And his promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Are you centering your life around Christ because the whole universe is centered around him? Everything is. And everything in this divine book that we hold so highly, and rightly so, is all centered around him. So are you centering around him, repenting, dying to self, centering your life around him? We're going to get fast here. Fourthly, coming to Christ means choosing to love him above all else daily. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But woe to you Pharisees, he says, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That above all these things, you've got to have love or you have nothing. Coming to Christ means choosing to love him above all else daily. Look, I'm not going to get into the the very hotly debated arguments about like who chooses who first and all that kind of stuff because that's not this in the time that's not that's what the scripture's talking about. What this is talking about is that every day you've got to wake up and choose God again. Not because you get saved that way. I don't mean that. If you're saved, you're his, you'll persevere to the end. That's how we know you're saved. Okay, once saved, always saved. Okay, no doubt. How do you know? Well, you persevere to the end. That's what Jesus says. That's how we know because you made it to the end. You were still a Christian at the end. That's how we know. We don't know for sure until then. But what we do know is that if you're a believer, you're going to always be a believer. That's God's sovereign work there. We know that's the case. But what I'm saying is this. Just like I know that I am always married to my wife, no matter what happens, we're married. Okay? That's not going to change. We made a commitment. The D word never comes up. We're in it to the end. Okay? We're in it. 
That's what we're going to do. That's what we've said so far. Again, we're faulty humans. We'll, you know, that's what we said. We committed to each other. Now, I did have a nightmare where, like, two nights ago where I woke up and, and I was frantically, like, crazy in my head because I thought she left me in my nightmare. It was a nightmare. She's still there, <laughs> okay? But what I'm saying is that my marriage is never, never at, at question, but every day I wake up, I have to choose whether or not I'm going to love my wife. And sometimes I don't do it very well. And sometimes I don't do it very well, and she doesn't do it very well loving me, and sometimes we do it really well. But every day it's a choice. Every moment it's a choice to continue to love my wife. When you're tempted with sin, it's a choice to continue loving the Savior or going for that sin. When you guys are watching somebody walk down the hall and you decide if you're going to take a double take, that, that's a choice you're making to love yourself over loving God. And that's a sin if you do. Every time that you have some desire to, to, to sit back and watch something blow up and you're not going to participate when you know you can help solve an issue or you can bring peace to an issue and bring glory to Christ in that, and you decide not to step into that because that's not your business, even though you have the opportunity to show Jesus, that's you loving self and self-preservation over loving that person with Jesus in that moment. It's, you're not loving God very much. You're loving self. That in itself is a choice. Every day you've got to choose to love God or not choose. Who are you going to choose today? Who are you going to choose tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day? Every time you do something that is classified as sinful, it's because you're choosing not to love Jesus in that moment. And he spent his entire life never not loving you, never not loving me. Why do we do it? I'll tell you why. Because we get our eyes off of Jesus. We get caught up on stuff that doesn't really matter. Church, let us not become like the church in Ephesus. The one that he said, you did so well, you knew all this truth, you held to the truth, the theology was great, you stood against the wolves. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, who is Jesus and his gospel. Let us not abandon the love that we have in Christ. It means choosing to love him above all else. And lastly, it means coming to Christ means finding our joy in him daily. Now, I'm not going to assume that this is the way it was for you. But I, growing up, I never heard about the joy of the Lord except for that one song we sang. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know that song? And you're going to sing it all day today. Okay, sorry. Not really. It's kind of fun. But here's the thing. I heard that song, but I never really experienced it or saw it in anybody. You know, the joy of the Lord. I saw joy in other things. I had joy binging on Netflix. We had joy playing football or baseball or soccer. I had joy playing sports, hanging out with my friends, but I never heard much talk about a theology of joy in the scriptures. The scriptures are replete with a theology of joy that is just a fingertip away from us. And yet we, we give ourselves the things that will never fulfill us when we can be filled with joy. Let me give you a taste of it. Matthew 13, 44, uh, Jesus is trying to give a parable, and he's talking about all the ways in which the, the kingdom can be understood. And he says this one-verse kingdom statement. I love it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's crazy joy. His friends and family are like, what are you doing? It's just a field. It's everything. It's everything. I'm so excited. I can't wait to take you to see it. Right? This is the best thing ever. This is the kind of joy that we have access to. John 15, Jesus is talking. He says, but by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. See how obedience is connected to being in the love of Christ? If you really love him, you'll do I tell my kids all the time, if you love me, you'll obey me. Do you love your daddy? Then you need to obey me. That's what love is demonstrated in the scriptures, in authority. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, you will abide in my love. He says this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy, our joy, church, may be full. Now, I know some of you may be real joyous people, but I've never met anybody that's always full of joy. But he's saying that if we walk in his ways and follow him and abide in him, we can be filled to the fullest extent with joy. Joy that is inexpressible, he talks about later. That's the kind of joy you can't even describe It's so good. It's like somebody says, how good is it? It's like, yeah, that's how good it is, right? When's the last time you lived in that kind of joyful moment? You probably remember it when you became a believer. You probably remember it on a a couple of different peaks in your life where you felt that joy. It ain't always going to feel like it's there, but it can always run through you like a river if you're feasting on Jesus. If you keep coming back, if you keep coming back, keep coming back. Today, would you just keep coming back? Just keep turning back. Look, look at what he says here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let's not refuse, church. Don't refuse to come to him. Just Look at the stuff in light of Christ. Look at the options in light of Christ and let them fall away in their blandness as you're overwhelmed with the joy that comes in Jesus. Just come to Christ today. Look, you may look at all this stuff and think, this is crazy, I can't do all this. This is where we're going to end. I can't do all that. There's too much to do. You're right. You can't do all those things all the time. There's no way. But what you can do is turn come to Jesus. And if you turn and come to Jesus, turn and come to Jesus, turn and come to Jesus, the beautiful thing is is that he will fill you with his Holy Spirit, and he will draw you in, and he'll begin to do all that work in you, and shape you, and change you more into the image of Christ. And next thing you know, you look back, and you're like, wow, look what I I look so different. And I I, I like, I, I love getting in the Word and understanding more about who He is. Not because it's the Word and I get to know this knowledge, but because I get to see Jesus for who He is, and I just love Him because He loved me so much. And, and the more you'll begin to see that you begin to speak of Him everywhere you go, it just changes everything about who you are. But all you've got to do is stop refusing to come back to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, please, don't, don't turn away from the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. He's not there to scold you even. He even says this at the end of this passage. He says this crazy thing. He says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. That's Moses on whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how you believe my words? In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to accuse you. I'm standing here saying, come to me. All you who are weary, who are heavy laden, come back to me right now. I'm here. Come to me. I'm the father with a prodigal waiting for you to come home. He's saying, come to me. The accuser is the word itself. Just come back to me. Today would you come back to me? That's what he's saying to you. I pray that you would come back to him. I'm going to pray for us now. We're going to sing one more song, and then I'm going to be standing up here. If you need to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, I'll be here. If you just need to deal with God right where you are, then you do that there. Don't leave this place without coming back to Jesus. Don't walk away 
of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness, for the love that you have shown us. God, you you have been so merciful, Lord. You're so good and kind that you would love us when we are unlovable. And even though we have turned away from you and pushed against you and walked away from you, you are still beckoning us to come to you. Lord, there is no one here. This is so good. We can trust in your sovereign grace that there is no one here that you have not desired to be here today. Everybody here is here for a purpose, that we might become more like your son Jesus as we are hit in the face and heart with your word. There is not one word out of your scriptures that returns void. You made that promise. So today, would you work in the hearts and lives of all of us in here, Lord, and shape us more to the image of Christ. Break down the barriers of resistance. For, Lord, you are powerful enough to do that and draw us back to you so that you would receive the glory so that we would be made into your image so that you would be the one who gets all the fame and that Jesus' name will be proclaimed in this place. And we ask that in Jesus' name right now.